and a little scattered this morning, so let me get this on. We'll be ready to go. All right, well, we are back in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, and I'm excited to get back into this letter. Thanks, Jim, for that helpful introduction, giving us the perspective that we need to have as we come into this book. You know, sometimes as we, as I prepare for sermons, give you a little information on how the donuts are made here. You, you, you have an illustration that, that sort of is guiding the way you're thinking about bringing the sermon in, and that was not the case this week. I went searching for one. I had this idea, and we'll get to it in just a second. I had this idea about, okay, how do we describe what happens when the church compromises with the existing culture? And I was thinking about different illustrations, and I found myself on the marineinsight.com website. I have never been to marineinsight.com, nor will I ever revisit marineinsight.com, but I think you'll understand why I was there as we get into the sermon. This is an article written earlier this year in June, um, and the title of the article from marineinsight.com is Why Ships Sink? Ten Major Reasons. And uh, I didn't know why ships sank, so I was curious as to the ten major reasons that the author was going to give. The first major reason, which is the only one I'm going to share with you, is probably no surprise to you. It's flooding. Flooding is the most common reason why ships sink. I'm so glad that the naval people who know this stuff inform us of these things. The scientific explanation, the author writes, behind how ships float is that the weight of a vessel is supported by the water it displaces when floating. Mathematically, it goes like this. The weight of the ship equals the volume of the water displaced times the density of the water. The water that's displaced by the ship equals the volume of the ship that is submerged, and we can rewrite the equation as this. Weight of the ship equals submerged volume of the ship times the density of the water. He goes on to say that when water is able to enter the vessel through openings in the hull or superstructure, the regions filled with water are no longer hydrostatically considered to be part of the ship. However, the weight of the vessel remains constant. This creates an imbalance where the weight of the ship is now larger than that of the displaced water, and as a result, the vessel continually sinks lower in the water until it is completely submerged. Due to mounting water pressure, Holds, walls, and bulkheads may eventually rupture, which will lead to the vessel rapidly sinking. Now, perhaps you knew that. I did not know the mathematical equations behind why that happens. But we know that when water gets into a ship, the ship is doomed. The ship's designed to be in the water, but once the water begins to get into the ship, if no action is taken, then it's only a matter of time before the ship sinks. Now, although the ship is meant to be in the water, the water is not meant to be in the ship. And Jesus is talking all about this to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2, 12 to 17, because, brothers and sisters, the water has begin has begun to get into the ship at the church at Pergamum. Jesus initially, as we'll see, commends the church for staying afloat and keeping the course in the midst of a lot of storms, that they're surrounded by, but he warns the church that he's found a couple leaks. And if those leaks are not addressed and those holes are not plug plugged, the world 
will begin sinking the ship. That's where we're headed this morning. The title of the sermon is God's Church in Satan's City, the Danger of Cultural Compromise. This is the particular danger that the church in Pergamum is facing. We're going to consider these five or six brief verses under three headings this morning. Here's the first one. When the church is convictional and courageous, Jesus commends us. When the church is convictional and courageous, Jesus commends us. That's exactly what he does for the church in Pergamum. We're going to see that beginning in verses 12 and 13. Notice verse 12 where he writes, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Jesus introduces himself here in verse 12 as the one having a sharp two-edged sword. Now, we've heard that language already in the book of Revelation, but because we've been out of the book for several weeks now, it'd be helpful to refer back to chapter 1, verse 16, where this phrase, sharp two-edged sword, first appears in the book. And we saw there that this phrase, two-edged sword, refers to Jesus' judicial authority. It's the judicial authority of Jesus' word, by which he penetrates to the deepest level and sees to the heart of what's going on. It's similar to what we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the word of God is described as a sharp, two-edged sword. This reminds us that Jesus is one who speaks truth and who will judge and destroy by his word those who side against him. So the question before us is, whose judgment do we really fear? Jesus is reminding the church of Pergamum here that it is to be his judgment and his gaze that they are ultimately be con- to be concerned about, not the judgment or gaze of the world. The, word, the sword of the world or the sword of the Son of God, which is it going to be? Because this church, as we will see, is facing not just the words of the world, but the sword of the world. Some of them are being killed for their faith. And Jesus says, I got a bigger sword than they got. And I've got a bigger judgment than they've got. My word, my sword matters more than theirs. So we will all face situations where the world judges us to be wrong. And Jesus says, don't regard their judgments that heavily. Whose sword are we going to respect in that moment? The sword of the world or the sword of the sun? I'd rather receive the sword of the world than the sword of Jesus, wouldn't you? Verse 13 goes on to describe Pergamum as the place of Satan's throne. This was a place full of pagan temples and a large imperial cult that lived in the city. The brothers and sisters in this church are commended by Jesus for withstanding the pressures to compromise the claims of Christ, specifically the claims of his exclusivity. He says, you have held fast my name and did not deny my faith. See, they were so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that Antipas, presumably one of their church members, had been killed because of his devotion to Christ. The church had remained faithful to Jesus in the midst of hostility and external threats. This was a church that had endured a ton. It had refused to give up on Jesus or shut their mouths about him, even as members of their church were being killed while living in a satanic stronghold. Jesus loves this church, and he loves it when people hold faithfully to him and to the truth of his word, 
However, today it seems like such doctrinal faithfulness appears to be in somewhat short supply. Let me give you an example of this. Arizona Christian University released a study called the American Worldview Inventory, and it's a project led by the Barna Group, which is a church research organization, do surveys and studies and things like that. And according to this report, nearly two-thirds of Americans believe having, quote, some kind of faith is more important than the specific faith a person chooses. And almost 70% of those who gave that response identified as Christians. Brothers and sisters, these respondents are completely out of step with the saints in Pergamum. These saints in Pergamum held fast to Jesus and his exclusivity and to the faith that was in his name alone. This same survey that the Barna Group did found that a slight majority of self-identified Christians think a person can attain salvation by, quote, being or doing good, a belief that, as we know, is contrary to the New Testament's claim that salvation comes by grace through faith and not by works. The results of another study that was jointly sponsored by Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries found that over half of Americans and nearly a third of evangelicals agree with the statement that Jesus was, quote, a good teacher, but he was not God. And yet another recent survey conducted by the Barner Group with World Vision found that nearly half of young adults globally say that the church can't answer their questions or spiritual doubts. The sample size of the Barna study was over 15,000 respondents from 25 countries and nine languages. This wasn't just a small study but it suggests that theological literacy and worldview clarity are just not American deficiencies. They are global deficiencies. Christian identity is at risk on a global scale, including what the word Christian even means and whether Christian truth claims are distinct, knowable, and reliable. This would have been foreign to the believers in Pergamum. The believers at Pergamon would often remind themselves that no matter how hard it was to be a Christian there, no matter how intense the temptation to abandon Christ came, that no matter what pressures they had to serve another God, Jesus knew where they lived. He knew what they faced on a daily basis. He knew every intimate detail of their life lived in a city that hated God. We too haven't been abandoned brothers and sisters, far less ignored. Our life and ministry are as important to Jesus as that of any Christian in any church, in any country, in any century. You may feel as if our nation is becoming a modern-day Pergamum devoted to idolatry and immorality and the public ridicule of our glorious Savior, but of this you can rest assured. Jesus has sovereignly and strategically placed us here at this moment in history as his witnesses to hold forth his name and display his glory. That is beyond dispute. No matter what comes, and things will come, we live in a day when we as Christians will be accused of many things, perhaps being anti-Semitic because we insist on faith in Jesus as a Messiah to be saved, anti-choice because we oppose the killing of innocent human life, anti-gay because we won't affirm homosexual lifestyles, anti-women because we believe in male-only eldership in the local church, or anti-intellectual because we don't embrace biological evolution. We'll be accused of all sorts of things, being unloving, narrow-minded, intolerant bigots because we believe in the reality of something called the second death. 
and the only way of escaping it is through faith in Jesus Christ, and our response to all such anti-Christian rhetoric will be what? To yell back at people? No. To love them, to pray for them, to treat them kindly, with dignity and respect as image bearers, but at the same time, to pray ever more fervently and to speak ever more faithfully about eternal life that can only be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to point number two. When the church is complicit and compromising, Jesus confronts it. When the church is complicit and compromising, Jesus confronts it. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Jesus describes here in verses 14 and 15, some in the church, not all, but some in the church who had adopted various worldly philosophies, whether they were coming from false teachers claiming to be Christians or just cultural pagans in the city of Pergamum, Regardless, they were beginning to imbibe some of these worldly philosophies. And we don't get a lot of detail about them. It's called the teaching of Balaam in verse 14, and it's called the teaching of the Nicolaitans in verse 15. And while the believers were commended in verses 12 and 13 for their devotion, they're also indicted, at least some of them, are indicted for compromising. Some in their midst had accepted and advocated for the teaching of Balaam. Now, Whenever you read something like this in the Bible, especially in Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, you have to realize there's 65 books that come before this one. So those need to inform how we think about this one, right? Since this is the end of the story. And Balaam is only mentioned a handful of times in Scripture, but the story is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And in that story, Balaam encourages the people of Israel to sin through sexual immorality and idolatry. But Balaam found that he was only able to speak a blessing from God. So when direct attack failed, what did Balaam do? Well, he suggested that Moabite women begin to seduce the men of Israel and lead them away that way. When direct attack didn't work, seduction did. And this is what seems to be happening in the church at Pergamum. Direct attack doesn't seem to be working. They can kill them all day long. They're going to hold faithful to Jesus. So what is Satan's strategy when he can't get you to abandon your faith through violence? He does it through seduction. He does it through other ways. Instead of coming at you from the outside in, he comes at you from the inside out. He tries to lure you this way instead of attacking you that way. Now what happened in the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24? That strategy succeeded, didn't it? This corruption from within succeeded. The attacks from without didn't, but the seduction from within did. The history of Israel seemed to be repeating itself in the church at Pergamum. As some were participating in sexual immorality in the pagan temples, they sought to fit in with the social context of the city by joining in with such activities, and they didn't merely do what was wrong, but they, according to Romans 132, gave approval to those who also did it. And then in verse 15, we read that while some in Pergamum followed the teaching of Balaam, there were others who followed a group called the Nicolaitans. Now, this group has shown up in an earlier letter, in the very first letter, the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 6, where we first read about the Nicolaitans. And then 
as here, as we found out there, we're unfortunately left with a frustrating absence of further information about this group. However, it's likely that no additional information is given. Why? Because the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans was probably so similar. And so Jesus didn't feel a need to define for the church at Pergamum, nor for us, what the Nicolaitan teaching was because it was related to the teaching of Balaam. It had to do with sexual immorality in the church. In fact, the word Balaam in Hebrews and the word Nicolaitans in Greek both mean similar ideas. They mean to conquer the people. Now, Pergamum had faithfully held the line on doctrine, but not faithfully held the line in ethics. Whereas they had maintained their theological convictions in the face of persecution, they had not maintained their moral convictions. They began to tolerate in their church certain false prophets who advocated sexual sin. Ostensibly, this came in the name of Christian freedom. I want to turn you to a couple of passages that may give us insight into how this actually was playing out. Look at, first of all, 2 Peter. Turn back a couple of books in the Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2, maybe five or six pages in your Bible, and look at 2 Peter chapter 2, and look at verses 13 through 15, where we read, Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Again, look at the book of Galatians. Turn back a few more pages to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Where we read Paul's warning to the church at Galatia, chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So perhaps what was going on here is the... Teachers that were teaching in accord with Balaam were saying things like, hey, you're saved by grace. I mean, really, does it really matter your soul's saved? Does it really matter what you do with your body? I mean, didn't Jesus die for your soul? I mean, your soul is going to heaven. Does it really matter all what you do with your body? And, and this teaching begins to seep in and people begin to think, yeah, I've been called to freedom. And the Lord Jesus has... For freedom, Christ has set me free. And they begin to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Also, Jude chapter 4, the book right before the book of Revelation. Jude verse 4, there's no chapter 4 in Jude. But Jude verse 4, after telling the church to contend for the faith... He gives them the reason why in verse, in verse 4 when he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is just 
assumption on my part. I, I, I can't give you any definitive idea, but it's certainly a biblical idea whether this was the teaching of those who held to the teaching of Balaam or not here in Pergamum. But the point is that there, there, there is a threat in the New Testament that the apostles pick up on of taking God's grace and using it as an excuse for sin. Because we're saved by grace, because we're forgiven by the virtue of Christ's work and not our own, because we're counted righteous in Christ apart from our own works, that really our own works don't matter that much. It's really about grace, right? Romans 6.1 said, Paul anticipates this when he talks about people using grace in that way as a, as a license for sin. Sam Storms writes that although they had not themselves denied the faith, they had become inexplicably lax toward falsehood in the assembly and had endured the presence and teaching of ethical error. For this, Jesus severely rebukes them. This is a truly remarkable, indeed puzzling situation. They were devoted to the truth of who Jesus is and the essentials of the gospel message. They were even willing to die for it, but they fudged when it came to dealing with those in the church who compromised the ethical implications of that very gospel. Brothers and sisters, let us not be surprised when we see things like this. Let us not be surprised, God forbid, if this ever happens in our own assembly. Because people can hold in their heads and in their Bibles certain biblical teachings that you think they would never violate personally, but people do it all the time. We do all the time. We sin. That's what sin is. It's knowing what we ought to do and yet not doing it, right? And so here in this particular situation, it's grievous because we have to be careful that when persecution and difficulty increase, which it will likely in our culture, sin can find its way into the congregation. We get tired. We get tired. Tired of burying church members who are dying for their faith. I need a little trip to the temple. Do we not hear this from our own recently in Robbie Zacharias? He just needed a little stress relief. Brothers and sisters, this happens all the time. Jesus doesn't give us a pass on sin because life gets hard. We need to be aware of Satan's devices. He will first go to attack on the church, and where this fails, he'll try to attack within the church. Where cursing doesn't work, corruption might. Where persecution doesn't work, perversion might. If he can't overthrow from outside, he'll try to undermine from inside. If he can't kill a church, he'll join it. And the pastors and members will let him in. We, like Pergamum, need to be aware of this because we are increasingly become an overly sexualized society which means that this sort of permissiveness that is happening in the culture will increasingly seep into the church at large if the church is not faithful. It's already happening. Let me give you a few illustrations. USA Today ran an article in 2018 by a professed Baptist minister and lawyer named Oliver Thomas with the headline, American churches must reject literalism and admit that we got it wrong on gay people. The article begins with a provocative statement. Here's the beginning. Quote, churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Quote, 
being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. Wait, I thought that's what being a Christian meant. According to Thomas, the source of the church's error is not a misinterpretation of the scriptures, but rather that the Bible got it wrong. The biblical authors were bound by time, by culture, and by an antiquated worldview that wrongly defined and condemned sexual behavior. He writes, quote, Here is the corner we have painted ourselves into. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Yet the Hebrew and Christian scriptures did not float around from heaven perfect and without error. They were written by men, and those men made mistakes. So in just a few words... This author denies the position of the believing church since its beginning, which is that the scriptures are holy and stand as the inspired authoritative word of the living God. This article is an explicit condemnation of sola scriptura, and it's a denial of scripture as scripture. Now, the impetus of the charge of the article is moral. The Bible doesn't correspond to our present understandings of moral morality and ethics, particularly pertaining to sexual, sexual morality. So the sexual revolution has no compatibility with the Bible, and so the Bible must go. Or at least be seen as erroneous and dangerous artifacts of a bygone era. Truth must now be defined by subjective emotivism rather than the enduring and objective truth from a transcendent God. We have other examples of this happening now as well. Give you one example. Pete Buttigieg recently took direct aim at Christians when he said that I wish those of the world would understand that if you have a problem with who I am, now Buttigieg is a practicing homosexual man, that if you have a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me, your quarrel, sir, is with my creator. End quote. So while Buttigieg acknowledges the existence of a creator, and he claims to be a Christian, he avows that his sexual identity exists as an extension of God's will. God made him that way. The argument, however, does not square with biblical orthodoxy or the teachings of Scripture, and yet Buttigieg demands that evangelical Christians evolve in their understanding of Holy Scripture. The biblically orthodox interpretation of sexuality represents just this old, antiquated morality from a culturally dated and bigoted book. So in Judge's view, we ought to keep the universal principles but jettison the culturally and socially inconvenient passages that do not comport with our modern ideologies. So therefore, Christians have to redefine biblical sexuality in modern cultural terms. And this particular argument presses Christians to see homosexuality as a gift from God. And failure to evolve and to adopt an understanding of this and free the Bible from its pre-modern worldview puts Christians, as we've heard so many times, on the wrong side of history. One more. This is also coming home to roost in the Methodist Church. The General Conference of the United Methodist Church for decades has trended toward Protestant liberalism. However, after much maneuvering, the UMC has turned back the effort to abandon its historic affirmation of biblical sexuality and marriage, and there will likely be a split in the Methodist Church coming very soon over this very issue. It will be among those who are holding to the teachings of Scripture and reject the new sexual revolution and 
plunge forward in biblical faithfulness and those who co-opt to it. And this has been going on in the church for centuries. This is nothing new. And this is largely coming from our brothers and sisters on the continent of Africa and the United Methodist Church around the world that's looking at America and saying, what are you doing? You're walking away from Christ. The General Conference of the United Methodists sustained its biblical standards on marriage and as an exclusive union between one man and one woman and rejected the sexual revolution. Adam Hamilton, the pastor of the largest United Methodist Church in the United States, said the following about that. He suggested that all texts in the Bible, including texts about human sexuality, must be sorted into what he calls three different buckets. The first bucket contained verses that never, never amounted to the expression of God's will. They're just in the Bible, but they're not God's will. The second bucket encompasses texts that at one time denoted the express will of God, but they don't do that any longer. And then the third bucket holds texts that are true expressions of God's will and always will be. How convenient. Then we get a pick. We get a pick, right? That's what's happening. We can, we, can resi- we can say, okay, which commands? Okay, that's old. Okay, that was never meant to be God's will. Okay, that is. And then we just pick and choose what we like and what we don't like, therefore basically making ourselves God. See, what Adam Hamilton has done here is repeatedly denied the iner- inerrancy of God's word. And he went even further and argued that human beings are to decide which biblical texts are God's word. That that's our responsibility. What? The audacity of applying human reason to jettison verses as never expressing the will of God, brothers and sisters, is arrogance of the highest order. It is pride all the way at the extension, which is as old as the garden. That's exactly what Satan did. When he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he's like, I got a different interpretation of events for you. And he offers his take on the matter instead of, and, and chose and calls them to jettison God's take. Brothers and sisters, we have to be aware. And let's not just think it's happening in, out there, okay? We are a culture, and the church, from all the pastors that I interact with, and the repeatedly counseling sessions they interact with, pornography is a huge problem in the church. And it is the way in which, so let's not just think out there, okay? It's all them. If we can just control them. No, we've got issues, brothers and sisters. If we are not fighting and repenting of the tendency toward pornography, men and women, this is accepting the teaching of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans into the church. And it will ruin the church. It ruins the power of the church. It ruins the witness of the church. It ruins every, it, it sucks your soul dead so that you have no God power in your life. And it will, it'll, it'll, it will wither us out to walking tombs. And so we have to be resolved to fight this as well. Now, there is grace in the gospel. There is forgiveness in Christ. God is merciful and loving and lavish. But we have to be fighting, and we have to be repenting, at least fighting to repent. And the Lord will wash us again and again and again and again. But let us not sit back and coast and act like this is not a big deal. It is a huge deal. Thirdly, when the church is contrite and conquering, Jesus comforts us. This is a good word. This is where we bring the gospel to bear on all this. Aren't you thankful 
Jesus doesn't give up on this church. He commends them at the beginning. He says, I know what you're going through. I know you've held fast to my name in the midst of a culture that's very hostile. Now you have some issues. The devil's getting in, and he's tempting some of you to sexual immorality. But listen, I'm not done with you yet. I am not walking away from you. I am calling you to repent, and I am calling you to come back to me. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He says them very simply, which he says again and again in these letters. Repent. That's always our response to sin. Never to do what we've read of examples here to rationalize it or to excuse it or to find reasons around it or to say that wasn't an expression of God's will to begin with. No, we say, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm committed to change. That's what repentance is. It's agreeing with God that his assessment is right. And it's being willing to live in light of that. So we turn away from sin, and we keep turning away from sin. The repentance that Jesus calls for entails immediate acknowledgement of the error in their thinking, in their behavior, and in their lack of courage in dealing with it in the church. Jesus says, recognize this, confess this, that you're doing no one a favor by overlooking and allowing such sin in your midst. Confronting the Nicolaitans may be uncomfortable to you, it may be even painful, but it won't be nearly as painful as the judgment you'll suffer if you remain in it. So Jesus calls them and he calls us to repentance when our profession of faith does not match our practice of faith. Listen, brothers and sisters, contrary to what our world is telling us, Jesus does not agree that you can claim to be a Christian and live contrary to what the Bible says. That's it. Jesus does not agree with that. We can agree, we can try to convince others that they're wrong, but Jesus has the final word. And on the final day, this will be the case because this is what is already, he's already said, and he's not going to change his mind. Sometimes we know the truth, but we don't like it, it's not that we don't understand the Bible. It's just that we don't want to do it. We want to do something different. And some of the people in the church at Pergamum had said, hey, I want to call myself a Christian, but I also want to behave however I want to behave. And Jesus says, I know. And the answer is no. <laughs> that's, that's his simple response. I know you say that. But the answer is no. Listen, brothers and sisters, in our sin, we all love fake Christianity. We all love Build-A-Bear Christianity. That's what we want to do in our sin. We want to do Build-A-Bear. We want to take what we want and build the bear we want. But that's not what Jesus affirms. By nature, people love a fake form of Christianity that doesn't ask them to repent. One that not only tolerates our lifestyle, but that Jesus would affirm. And brothers and sisters, that is the definition of blasphemy. When you attribute to God and the blessing of God and the provision of God and the approval of God, what God does not approve, that's the very unpardonable sin. It's attributing 
to God what is of the work of the devil. And why is it the unpardonable sin? Because you can never come to God if you won't stop making him in your own image. That's why you can't ever be pardoned. You can only be pardoned by the real God. That's why it's unpardonable, because that God doesn't exist. You can't be pardoned by the God of your own making. You can only be pardoned by the God who is. So, Jesus says, in case of all that you're talking about, you exist to glorify me. I don't exist to glorify you. I don't exist to give you permission to do whatever you want to do in my name. Jesus says that's unacceptable. But also, if you don't repent, Jesus says there's judgment. Notice that he says, I will come to you. And he says something even more serious. Notice what he says in verse 16. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember what that's communicating. He's saying, I will come. If you don't deal with this, don't think there won't be consequences in this life. The faithful at Pergamum aren't off the hook. If they don't repent, Jesus will bring discipline against them, and we're not told in precisely what form it will take. But the people who are living this way and advocating for this will be the focus of the judgment. Not the entire church, but those who are either participating in it or letting it happen, which may be the whole church. But it's against them that Jesus will make war. Now this is strong language, isn't it? Such language suggests that their lack of repentance would be evidence of a lack of faith. And their persistence in unrepentance and moral compromise would undermine their claim to know Jesus in a saving way. So brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves, is our identity being more formed by Christ or by culture? Are we compromising sexually? Are you willing to say, I believe in Jesus, but there are some things that the Bible says that are very controversial and unpopular regarding sexuality, so I'm going to reject that and find teachers that will affirm and celebrate that, and we will pay them well so we can live in rebellion with spiritual authority permitting it. Many will pay top dollar to have their ears tickled in that way. Notwithstanding their remarkable devotion to the Lord, Pergamum had become overly tolerant of others whose immorality threatened to undermine the purity of the church. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of doctrine that is concerning in the church. But way, way more, we need to be concerned with how people live ethically and morally in the church. It's a both and. It's not an either or. The Bible talks about both all the time. But we need to be aware of those twin dangers. If the Ephesian church was guilty of elevating truth above love, then the church at Pergamum had elevated love above truth. According to Revelation 2.6, the Ephesians hated the work of the Nicolaitans and refused to tolerate their behavior. But those in Pergamum, they welcomed them into the fellowship of the church and gave them freedom to propagate their destructive ways. Here's what Joel Beakey says about this issue. In Ephesus, the church had rooted out heretics, even though her love for Christ was waning. 
But in Pergamum, heretics were tolerated in the name of love. Thus, the church in Pergamum reversed the problem that faced the Ephesian church. Pergamum had a record of loving zeal for the cause of Christ, even to the point of suffering martyrdom, but her doctrinal purity and spirituality were on the decline. Her moral power was broken as she gave in to the worldly spirit of compromise. Now, I want to make an application in this regard to us. Regarding the need for multidirectional thinking in the church, not every church has the same problems, okay? Churches are unique entities, local churches are unique entities that have various struggles. We see this in the letters. Jesus doesn't issue a blank word to a blank church and say, everybody, do this this way. Now, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the truths in all seven of these letters are not true for all of Christ's churches. They most certainly are. All these issues are issues all of Christ's churches face at various degrees throughout church history. My point is, is that Jesus is very nuanced in the way he addresses churches. Brothers and sisters, we have a, a largely lack of nuance in our day. There's just this, these blanket statements that are thrown out, especially on social media and things, condemning all of Christ's churches for various things, when that's not what Jesus would do. Jesus would go to very specific churches and say, these are the things you're doing well, these are the things you're not doing well, fix this. So multi-directional leadership is needed. We need minds that are equipped and well-trained to recognize and avoid dangers that come from different directions. The dangers that were affecting the Ephesians are not the dangers that are affecting those at Pergamum, right? They're different. They're different dangers. So our commitment to Christ and Scripture requires that we be alert to problems coming at the church from different angles. There are threats that come against the church's witness from several avenues. Now, let me just make this clear. By nature we prefer one-dimensional leadership. Why? Because it's easier. It's simpler. It's all or nothing. It's black or white. You convince yourself that you're faithful in fighting the dangers you see in front of you without the slightest concern of the backup dangers that are coming in behind you. This is why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15, the following words. Warn the idol. I didn't say warn everybody. Warn the idol. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Four different prescriptions for four different types of people. Paul doesn't give a blanket, here's how you treat everyone command. Why not? Because good doctors know that not all people need the same treatment. Matt Smethurst puts it this way, Paul is a physician of souls prescribing different medicines for different maladies, and he expects ordinary church members to do the same. Now, let me give you a couple of examples of this in action, this multidimensional leadership in, in, in action. One comes from 1968. This comes from the example of one of my favorite church leaders, uh, John Stott. I'm reading his autobiography or biography this year. When invited to address the World Council of Churches, John Stott chastised the attendees for what he perceived to be a dangerous imbalance in prioritizing deeds of love to the exclusion of the diminishment of verbal evangelism. Now notice, are we called to love our neighbor in practical, loving deeds? Yes. Are we called to preach the gospel to them? Yes. Now, when Stott comes into this this convention... He knows that their default 
is going to be on just the deeds, but not talking about the gospel. So his emphasis is going to be on the gospel and preaching the gospel. Does that mean he doesn't care about deeds? No, it's just not what they need to hear. So listen to what is written about this assembly and what Stott said. Stott says, The assembly has given its earnest attention to the hunger, poverty, and injustices of the contemporary world. Rightly so. I have myself been moved by it. But I do not find a comparable concern or compassion for the spiritual hunger of men. The church's first priority remains the millions and millions who, as Christ and his apostles tell us again and again, are without Christ and are perishing. The World Council of Churches professes to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. While the Lord Jesus Christ sent his church to preach the good news and make disciples, I do not see this in in this assembly as a whole eager to obey this command. Boy, he didn't make many friends that day, did he? Except Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ wept over the impenitent city which had rejected him. I do not see this assembly weeping any similar tears. Now Stott went toe-to-toe with those who are watering down the mission and turning it into basic social work. But in the years that followed, Stott also faced head-on those who thought the Great Commission was primarily and exclusively about evangelism without sufficient attention given to the church's concern for practical deeds of love, including Billy Graham. Though um, he said in a, in a debate regarding this, he said uh, in a debate uh, at, at Luzon in 1974, in a sharp debate in a committee meeting there. Now, my point is not to promote the particulars of Stott's position, okay? I'm not advocating that he did it all right and that everything was okay. But instead, I'm just lifting him up as an example of a man who was able to foresee and respond to threats to the church's witness that came from different directions. In one assembly, he could push hard against a reductionistic social gospel, and in another, he could push against a reductionistic fundamentalism and say, listen, you need to love people, but you need to primarily preach the gospel. Not either or. It's both and. Now, my worry today is that evangelical leaders have sharpened their skills in fighting threats to the church from only one direction, and it tends to be the direction they care the most about. What's worse, many evangelicals seem to prefer leaders who will point out the dangers coming from only one direction while never offering a warning or uncovering the blind spots that may originate closer to home. And to those leaders, I would say, you need to read more about your Savior in Revelation 2 and 3. Because what we need are leaders that are skilled in fending off threats from more than one direction. We need fearless leaders willing to hold up the Scriptures and proclaim truths that get to the root of our sins, our failures, our dysfunctions, no matter what political or theological categories get crossed in the process. We need leaders who will not let fear dictate their theological statements or determine their cultural posture. We need leaders with the dexterity and discipline to challenge problematic positions no matter where they come from. And that will not make you any friends. It's lonely because everybody hates you. Here's a negative example of this. That's more of a positive from Stott's example. But one of the famous revivalists of the past century was Billy Sunday, who was known for his fiery preaching against various sins of immorality and personal vice and his strident opposition to alcohol. He wasn't afraid to take on people's sins. If you ever read anything about Billy Sunday? Certain sins, that is. Curiously missing from his litany of evils was the racism of his era that provided cover for the resurgent KKK and would lead to the following years to the Great Migration. 
Before Billy Sunday's visit to Washington, D.C. in 1918, a Reformed Presbyterian black pastor named Francis Grimke, you need to read Grimke, Reformed Presbyterian pastor, urged Billy Sunday to speak prophetically about racism. Sunday chose not to, and reflecting later on this event, Grimke wrote the following, The members of our white churches are now doubtless patting themselves on the shoulder, chuckling in their sleeves, congratulating themselves upon the fact that they have passed safely through the ordeal of Mr. Sunday's diatribes, his scathing criticisms and denunciations without once being called to time by him for, his, for his, this sin of racial, racial prejudice. As chronic self-justifiers, we crave a message that puffs us up. Ear-tickling preaching may be fiery, it may be loud, it may step on toes, but they're never the toes of the people in the pews or the pastor in the pulpit. If we issue warnings regularly about dangers coming to the flock from only one side, we may gain short-term acclaim from church members, but we will leave them vulnerable to dangers and challenges coming from other directions. We must be courageous enough to pursue multi-directional leadership, even when the medicine may be unpopular. That's what Jesus models in these letters, and that's what he calls us to as churches, recognizing that the problem in the Ephesians church is not the problem in the Pergamum church. The Ephesians were strong on doctrine. They were weak on love. Pergamum was strong on love, so to say, but they were weak on doctrine. So it requires different medicines is the point. Okay, in conclusion, verse 17. This is where we'll conclude today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this is a wonderful promise. When God has promised us this, the promises of compromise, of compromise are just unmasked and deflated for the weak things they are. What does he promise? Three things. Hidden manna, white stone, new name. Let me describe those briefly. Hidden manna is likely a reference to heavenly reward that will be given at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.9. It's this access to the feast of God that we will have one day. This, I mean, who does not look forward to a great, big, good meal? I mean, some of, our, some of us, when we know it's coming at the end of the day, like we're thinking about it all day long. I get access to the hidden manna at six. Can't wait. And that's what Jesus is painting here. He's saying, if you are willing to repent, not compromise, hold fast to me, you will have access to me in heaven. Christ will nourish us and take care of us. Also, the white stone. This is probably another way of describing the same reward. Those who triumphed in athletic games were given white stones for entry into celebratory banquets, and such stones were also used in court cases to symbolize acquittal. Therefore, what's being communicated by this image is that those who repent and overcome will enjoy the messianic banquet and stand clean before God justified forever. There are no group bookings to heaven, only individual reservations. Christ will receive us. He will also give us a new name. This is similar to Isaiah 62, 1 and 2, that indicates that being given a new name by God communicates salvation. These people are mine. They belong to me. It means being claimed by God as his own. Quickly look at Revelation 22. Revelation 22, 3 and 4, talk about this new name. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. See, Christ will acknowledge us as his own. So if we put all this together, this is a promise that for those who repent, we will gain access to God's presence, made pure by the blood of Christ, and accepted into God's favor forever. Well, may God give us grace. We need grace. We need the power of his Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. But the good news is that Jesus walks among his churches and strengthens us for these kind of tasks. So let's pray that he would help us to do that as we close. And music team, you can come lead us. Father, we come in your name grateful, so grateful for the reminders that sometimes sting, that sometimes point things out about ourselves and about our struggles and about our weaknesses and about our sins that are not flattering and that chafe against our flesh. But Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, help us to hear this. Help us to hear this loving, gracious, kind, serious warning from, our, from the lips of our Master, Savior, King, and Christ, the Lord Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to our God. Lord, what, what a privileged status we have by grace. Help us to live worthy of this calling by resisting the danger of cultural compromise. By not resisting it in a way that's ungodly, in attitude and fighting and bitterness, and, but no, holding fast to this in humility and faithfulness and quiet obedience before you. Lord, make us the same in private as we are in public. Make us to be consistent Christians on Sunday as we are Monday through Saturday. That the way we would speak to our brothers and sisters here in this place would mark the way we speak to other image bearers throughout the week that the feelings we have, that the worship that we engage in, that the devotion that we show would be consistent tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday evening and Friday afternoon and Saturday morning. Lord, make us to be whole disciples, fully committed to you in all ways, at all times, for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.